think the focus was kind of on how people are treated uh, while in, in prison. And, and the answer to that, in short, is um, really inhumanely, really. The wages are minuscule, uh, orders are barked at. Yeah, it's, um, it's just a very, very bad experience. And if a person refuses to do a job, boy, they retaliate very hard. If a person refuses a job, they will push that person and get that person to work. But like Ron says, some men don't have it as fortunate as I did, which I have my family. For me, I would like to have worked for all of those things. And now what I'm doing is the reason I'm working so hard, everybody else, is because, and the reason I work Monday through Saturday, 13 to 16 hour shifts a day, is because I want to pay everybody that they did for me. That's what I want to do, and that's what I'm doing. Welcome to episode number two of Wisconsin Prison Voices, a production by the Milwaukee branch of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee. My name is Emily. And my name is Ben. The Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, or IWOC, is a prisoner-led section of the Industrial Workers of the World. IWOC builds bridges between prisoners on the inside and workers on the outside to challenge the abuses of the prison system and end highly exploitative prison labor conditions and work for the long-term goal of prison abolition. For more information and to get involved with our organizing efforts, go to www.wisconsinprisonvoices.org and follow us on Twitter at WIPrisonVoices and Instagram at WisconsinPrisonVoices. In this episode, we will be discussing prison labor in Wisconsin, hearing directly from former incarcerated people about what it means to labor in one of the state's 20-plus prisons. From classrooms to government buildings, from highways to state parks, prison labor shapes everyday life in Wisconsin. Student desks in university classrooms, ice cream in campus hall, state park trail maps and brochures, road signs and town banners, every single state license plate, all of these products materialize from prison labor. Whether keeping the prison running or supplying the state with cheap food and furniture, prison labor is nearly free. The range of pay for incarcerated workers ranges from nothing, a means of punishment for disciplinary sanctions, to around $1.60 an hour for the most valued jobs in the so-called prison industries. Banned from forming a union and not even recognized as employees by the state, incarcerated workers belong to one of the most exploited sectors of the working class in Wisconsin. The profound changes in Wisconsin's rural and urban economies over the last half century have left many workers with few options, and the prison system, expanding as the state's industrial and agricultural economies have contracted, has emerged as a warehouse for the most marginalized. In the United States, the carceral capital of the world, nearly 900,000 people labor in prisons. Most of this labor is devoted to the tasks crucial to the daily upkeep of a prison, such as laundry, cleaning, cooking, and maintenance. Only 75 to 80,000 prisoners work in so-called prison industries, producing goods and services for public entities like schools, state parks, and administrative buildings. These national patterns are on display in Wisconsin prisons too, where the majority of prisons work jobs that keep the prison running and a minority under 400 on an average day, according to a 2020 report from the DOC, work in the higher paying prison industry jobs. 
formerly known as Badger State Industries, but now referred to as the Bureau of Correctional Enterprises, or BCE, Wisconsin Prison Industries consists of 11 different operations, including a license plate factory, furniture manufacturing, and a dairy farm and processing plant. BCE products are sold to a limited public market, including government administrations, state agencies, and public universities. One of the largest buyers of prison-made furniture is the University of Wisconsin education system. Wisconsin statutes and contracts make the the purchase of prison-made furniture an obligation for public entities like UW. As the contract puts it, all state agencies and University of Wisconsin campuses must purchase from this contract unless a waiver is obtained from the Bureau of Correctional Enterprises. In 2020, it was reported that the UW system was responsible for purchasing 52% of furniture produced by BCE, spending nearly $4.6 million. The UW system has faced significant pushback from students for continuing to contract with BCE. This includes a petition led by students that highlights the discrepancy between the UW system's stated values of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and their complicitness in purchasing items made by incarcerated people who are being exploited for their labor. However, administrators have expressed that they must renew their contract with BCE each year in order to comply with state law. The current contract between BCE and the UW system has been extended to the end of 2022. Most incarcerated workers earn one of seven hourly wages, depending on their job, and these range from around five cents an hour to 42 cents an hour. Workers in the prison industry jobs may earn at most around $1.60 an hour. But as the following story indicates, the DOC may even intercept these meager earnings. During my entire period of incarceration, 13 years, I always worked a job. I worked in the prison law libraries. Um, However, uh, for the last uh, 13 years, uh, the DOC intercepted 100% of my wages. But not to end there, they also intercepted any and all money, gift money, that my loved ones sent in. And and that's important for reasons that'll become apparent. Um, I worked full-time, and the prison system uh, only provides uh, toothpaste uh, and a toothbrush and uh, very small slivers of soap, very small. Other items are available uh, on the commissary, on the canteen, Um, but I wasn't able to buy them uh, because 100% of my wages were taken. So, for example, if a person wants to uh, shave, um, uh, shampoo their hair, use lotion, uh, use Q-tips, virtually any type of hygiene that you can think of, a person uh, is not able, like myself, was not able to do that. And the way the DOC would have is that I would not shave in 13 years, nor use deodorant, shampoo, hand lotion. Q-tips, or any other type of hygiene products. So during the time uh, that all of my monies were taken, other men were very kind-hearted and compassionate and helped me with those hygiene items. Uh, and for that, um, I was given a disciplinary conduct report. So in other words, 
I was punished for maintaining proper hygiene. Even though I worked a full-time job in the prison law libraries, uh, and I could have very well bought them my own, but the DOC took all of my monies, wages and gift monies, and I wasn't able to buy them on my own. And when they found out uh, <clears throat> a year before my release, uh, I was given a, a disciplinary conduct report. Due to the lack of adequate food and sanitary products available to incarcerated people, they're often forced to use their limited wages and money from their family and friends to purchase products through the canteen. Canteen is a near constant issue for Wisconsin prisoners, and it not only affects prisoners, but also family and friends on the outside who provide funds for canteen purchases. In addition to paying for phone and email services, friends and family outside must also purchase items through this vendor at prices that are often much higher than they would pay if shopping in the free world. Any care packages or goods that loved ones would like to send to people in prison must be purchased through these vendors. The Milwaukee branch of IWALK has created an interactive canteen prison calculator that describes how many hours it would take at various wage levels to purchase canteen items, such as hygiene and food products, and also medical visits. The calculator can be found at wisconsinprisonvoices.com prison price calculator. At the lower wage ranges, such as 12 cents an hour, it would take 12 hours of wages to purchase a stick of deodorant, 17 hours to buy a bottle of shampoo, and 28 hours to buy a 30-count pack of cough drops. But as the previous story indicates, if wages are seized by the DOC, an incarcerated person might not be buying anything, despite working full-time. While the wages earned by all prisoners amounts to little, the DOC has the authority to intercept earnings for court-ordered payments. As the DOC statute puts it, the department has the authority to determine how much, if any, of the earnings of an inmate or resident may be spent and for what purposes they may be spent within the confines of the prison or institution. The legalized theft of wages makes the purchase of necessary goods from the canteen onerous, if not impossible. Yeah, it's, um, it's just a very, very bad experience. And if a person refuses to do a job, why they retaliate very hard. A person refuses a job, they will push that person and get that person to work by issuing a conduct report, a disciplinary conduct report, and then making that person work it off through extra duty. They'll say, instead of going to solitary confinement, we're going to give you an opportunity to work off this disciplinary ticket, and you can work it off through shoveling snow or washing windows or whatnot. So that really is prison labor because they'll issue tickets for really nonsensical, seemingly benign things like using hygiene, for example. As a DOC statute puts it, quote, inmates assigned to secure work programs shall be compensated at an hourly rate unless serving a disciplinary sanction, end quote. Following a disciplinary sanction, a hearing officer may give uncompensated work crew assignments like Ron describes in the previous segment. According to DOC statutes, quote, an inmate may be required to work for up to 80 hours without pay. I should have had quite a nest egg saved up for my release. Instead, uh, I was released into the community with no money, even though I had worked, uh, I had worked full time in the law library. I was released with no money, 
no toilet paper, no hygiene items, no food, no clothing, no phone, or no transportation. The first time I was only out a week, and it was only out a week because I had gone to a social service agency to go and get a loaf of bread. The DOC had deemed me a low risk, but because I went to that social service agency to get a loaf of bread because I was hungry, I was sent back to prison for three and a half years. I'll say that again, I was sent back to prison because I went to go and get a loaf of bread because I was released into the community penniless. I served my three and a half years. And that is something uh, that is called a crimeless revocation. You may hear that term more and more. Uh, people like Carlos and myself, after we serve our, uh, our period of incarceration, if we break a rule, no matter how minor it is, uh, we are oftentimes very quickly sent back into prison. The DOC said, Mr. Schrader, we knew exactly where you were because you were on discretionary GPS. It wasn't required, but they put it on me anyway, as they do for a lot of people. They said, we knew exactly where you were because you were on GPS. The problem is you needed to ask seven days in advance before you went to get that loaf of bread. So I went back to prison for three and a half years. Again, I went back working in the law library. I worked full time. Uh, and again, I was released into the community penniless again. So uh, I made it only three months that time because after uh, 90 or so days, my parole agent said, Ron, are you paying your child support? And I said, I'm not sure because all of the pay stubs and that is done online. And I had trouble logging onto their website. But I can tell you that I did call the child support agency and I did report my employment. The next day, my parole agent contacted my employer, got a detailed wage statement, saw that child support was being deducted from my paycheck and had me immediately taken into custody. In particular, she said that I lied to her. She said that I told her, that I was not paying my child support when in fact I was. And for that, she sent me back to prison for two and a half more years. So when I say I was incarcerated for 13 years for a nonviolent conviction, that throws most people off. <clears throat> but make no mistake, I had spent more time in prison on crimeless revocations than I had for my initial confinement portion of my sentence. Prison wages not only make the purchase of material goods within the prison a challenge, the low wages can make the transition to life after prison extremely difficult as well. As the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reported in 2018, one-fourth of the five million formerly incarcerated people in the U.S. were unemployed. While the state of Wisconsin spends over a billion dollars annually on prison housing, it spends around $30 million on training and reentry programs for people released from prison. And I share my story with intense passion, not because this is a woe is Ron Schrader, uh, 
this is woe are the taxpayers of Wisconsin, like yourself and so many others that are paying exorbitant costs and fees to put people in prison and back in prison for things like going to get a loaf of bread and other things. Um, when I left there, my fiance had and my family had bought everything that I needed. Um, everything that I needed. Um, when I got here, everything was just sitting on the porch. Um, but I still couldn't leave the house. But like Ron says, some men don't have it as fortunate as I did, which I had my family. For me, I would like to have worked for all of those things. And now what I'm doing is the reason I'm working so hard, everybody else, is because, and the reason I work Monday through Saturday, and 10 to 13 to 16 hour shifts a day, is because I want to pay everybody back that did for me. That's what I want to do, and that's what I'm doing. So all the, the regular hours that I make, I keep that money for myself. The overtime that I pick up and make, I divide it between all of the people that have ever done anything for me. And even the guys that are in prison, I have helped them out. And I, but I have to help them out in a different way, VIA, having money sent to them to uh, a friend or a family member, because I don't want my name to be seen on there. Um, so I want to repay everybody back who that did for me and helped me out. I just don't, I, I just, you just can't forget the people who helped you. For me, that's where I come from. Um, somebody helps you, you help them out. An incarcerated worker is not recognized by the state as an employee. Thus, the worker is excluded from the rights, pay, and protections state and or federal law typically offers workers. In the eyes of the state and the courts, the incarcerated worker enters a so-called penological relation. That is, the work is understood as a part of rehabilitation without any relation to the wider economy. As an example of how this plays out, in 1993, former Wisconsin prisoners sued Badger State Industries for minimum wages, as guaranteed by the Fair Labor Standards Act. The case was unsuccessful and the judge ruled in the state's favor. As Judge Crabb stated in the opinion, prisoners are essentially taken out of the national economy upon incarceration. When they are assigned work within the prison for purposes of training and rehabilitation, they have not contracted with the government to become its employees. Rather, they are working as part of a, their sentences of incarceration. Prison labor, as one Wisconsin DOC statute puts it, encourages inmates to develop skills that will be useful in helping them to become reintegrated into the community upon release. And as described earlier, work may also be a form of punishment and therefore uncompensated in what the DOC calls disciplinary sanctions. But prison labor, by being compensated with wages and producing commodities and services necessary for the daily needs of the public sphere, cannot be confined to the simple definitions of DOC statutes and court rulings. As law scholar Eric Fink has argued, these public-private distinctions are not clear-cut, particularly when a prison industry fulfills the material needs of government operations, and prisoners are paid wages, what Fink describes as a term specifically associated with an employment relationship. As Fink concludes, quote, a rational approach would recognize prison labor for what it is, part and parcel of the contemporary economy, end quote. This means prisoners should have the same rights as workers on the outside, such as minimum wage guarantees and the right to organize.
when I got to prison, I met a lot of very, very good people, very good people who I'm still very good friends with. Some are still in prison, some are out of prison that would give the shirt off of their back and actually have. Because remember, I got out last, um, last March during the pandemic. Goodwill wasn't open. St. Vincent de Paul wasn't open. Uh, my girlfriend, she doesn't have men's clothes, and she's a single mom, so I wouldn't ask her uh, to buy. You know who came to my rescue? I'll tell you, men that I had met in prison came from all across the state to help me with clothes, food, hygiene items. So I met some really, really good people in prison. And a lot of men that I've met had some very serious mental health disabilities. And those men who I'm still friends with were very, very quickly placed in solitary confinement, also known as the whole, also known as segregation, um, because the staff didn't know how to deal with them, because the staff did not have clinical training for mental health needs. So the reaction the quick reaction is to put the person in the hole. And that broke my heart. Prison workers, despite their exclusion from employment status and the right to unionize, still find ways to organize, protest, and improve their conditions. This too is not without historic precedent. Multiple strikes occurred at Wapan Prison in, in the 1940s. In 1971, months after the infamous prison uprising at Attica, Prisoners would rise up at Green Bay as well, setting fire to a carpenter's shop and one dormitory wing. Today, hunger strikes continue to be a way to protest prison conditions, but prisoners push back against the prison system in less obvious ways as well, such as mutual aid networks. I was released from prison on December 1st of 2020 after serving 27 years. Um, I left there with what I had on my back and I left there with the coronavirus. Um, I thought I was, I, I literally, when it hit the prison system, I thought that I said to myself, man, I can't believe this. I'm a month away, I'm less than a month away from going home, but we got the virus. I'm not gonna die here after serving all this time. <laughs> and I went to sleep with that thought in my mind every night. I went to sleep with the headache, with the stomach pains, all of that. Um, I'm not going to tell you that the healthcare there was great. You basically had to take care of yourself. So a lot of us, we went to the black market. If, uh, I suppose if Ron was in prison where I was at and he had us antibiotics, I would trade with him or I would barter with him or I would make deals with him to treat myself with his antibiotics simply because it's either that or pay $750, which you don't have to go see your doctor or nurse. And after you see the nurse, you have to wait maybe two or three weeks, maybe a month, maybe two. So that's what we were doing in there, all of us, when we had the coronavirus. A lot of us were trading uh, medications in the black market or buying it on the black market or doing what we had to do. Unfortunately for me, but fortunately for me, I had my fiance and I had my family. Um, so I was able to, I, you know, I have always had money in my account to um, purchase what other people wanted to buy their juices, to buy their medicines and stuff like that. And that's how I pretty much made it through with the coronavirus. With low prison wages, a medical visit, which costs seven fifty, which becomes especially laborious to pay off. Faced with the high costs of health care, 
Prisoners may resort to informal exchanges with other prisoners to take care of themselves. This becomes a part of what James Kilgore calls the prison informal sector. Since they are against the rules, Kilgore says, these economic activities are also a form of informal resistance to an oppressive system, a way for people to assert their humanity and claim their right to improve living conditions inside an institution that aims to grind them into dust. In the face of DOC failures, prisoners organize to improve their conditions, often breaking DOC rules in the process. Prison labor is much more than a job worked by an incarcerated person in a prison. It impacts one's ability to access material goods and healthcare within the prison and has ramifications for one's life outside of the prison after release. Since incarcerated workers are paid such meager wages, they may have to rely on funds from family and loved ones to purchase items in the canteen or on the goodwill of their fellow prisoners, and they may leave prison without the funds to make a dignified transition to free life, despite working full-time for their entire period of incarceration. Despite these highly exploitative conditions, incarcerated workers, however, are not without agency. Prisoners find ways to organize and improve their conditions even when banned from the right to officially organize. Prison workers must have better wages, the right to organize, and recognition of their contributions to the public and sometimes private spheres, and they should never be submitted to forced labor. More worker power, whether within the prison or beyond, is a key part of ending the prison industrial complex. As Ruth Wilson Gilmore has written, quote, the purpose of abolition is to expose and defeat all the relationships and policies that make the United States the world's top cop, warmonger, and jailer. The scope of prison touches every aspect of ordinary life. Thus, it is possible and necessary to identify all those points of contact and work from the ground up to change them, end quote. Labor is certainly one of those points of contact, and we must seriously consider the fact that the prison system has expanded in the same period that workers' movements have lost power, factories have closed down, and farms foreclosed. As Eric Loomis has put it, quote, ending prison labor exploitation, what strike organizers, organizers call prison slavery, should be at the top of the agenda for the American labor movement, as it is the defining feature of work for the lives of huge swaths of the American working class, end quote. So when I first went inside, I, I didn't work. I was just too busy uh, being angry. So uh, I spent a lot of time going to the hall on the set, fighting, fighting with staff, fighting with inmates. It didn't matter what was going on. I was young, I was immature, and I was stupid. Um, I had an old convict pull me to the side when I got out of the hall, and long story short, he said, give me a chance, and gave me one of the best jobs in the institutions. Now, I barely spoke English. So by him giving me that job, I started looking at words, I started seeing things, and I started listening to people, how they wrote, what they did, and, I, and that's how I learned my English. That concludes our episode. You have been listening to Wisconsin Prison Voices, a production by the Milwaukee branch of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee. IWALK is a prisoner-led section of the industrial workers of the world, forming bridges between prisoners on the inside and workers on the outside, to challenge the abuses of the prison system and highly exploitative prison labor conditions and work for the long-term goal of prison abolition. For more information and to get involved with our organizing efforts, 
go to www.wisconsinprisonvoices.org or follow us on Twitter at WIPrisonVoices and Instagram at Wisconsin Prison Voices.